bad boys, bad boys. What you gonna do? What you gonna do when we come for you? Welcome to Now Playing's Bad Boys Retrospective Series. You, you, you ain't with the bad guys, boy. You with, you with the cops. This is history, bitch! Hosted by Arnie. Are you some kind of action junkie? Yeah. Is that what you want to call it? Stuart. Can you stay focused? What are you talking about? I'm focused. And Jacob. I get up early and I take it to the max every day. got something for you. Shit could get you killed. These podcasts contain detailed plot spoilers and harsh language. Hey, talk polite. In front of my little bonbon. Or I'm gonna chop your balls off. Listener discretion is advised. So I want you guys to do whatever you do, whatever it takes, but do it now. Today we're discussing Bad Boys, starring Martin Lawrence, Will Smith, Taya Leone, and Joe Pantaleono. <laughs> You're not even going to try for that villain. Directed by Michael Bay. This is your Bad Boy co-host of Now Playing, Arnie. This is Stuart. And I ain't no Wesley Snipes. This is Jacob. <laughs> Wesley Snipes, yes, bad boys. And we're talking about this movie now because, A, I don't think Bad Boys 3 is ever going to happen. It was supposed to come out in 16, and then it was supposed to come out in 17. It was supposed to come out last weekend, actually, was when it was on the calendar. And then I was the one, you told me it wasn't even being made. I'm like, no, they shot something in my neighborhood. I saw the vans when I was in L.A., there had been some pre-production work, but I guess not enough. I thought I just read a story a couple weeks ago that there still got hopes for it, but I guess not. When we decided to put this on the calendar, we knew we had two weeks between Wonder Woman and Transformers. And I just so happened to read that while they were shooting for a November 18 release now... The director pulled out at the 11th hour and Will Smith has decided since Bad Boys 3 isn't getting together, he's going to go be the genie in a live action Aladdin film. <laughs> so I'm thinking this is never going to happen. The biggest thing is Michael Bay was never going to come back because he says he and Will Smith are the two most expensive filmmakers in Hollywood. And so the budget just to get them both back is problematic. So then getting Martin Lawrence's schedule and Will Smith's schedule to align. Martin Lawrence's schedule used to be busier. <laughs> yeah, no, he's wide open these days. I got to imagine. No big mama's house coming out. Is he wandering another freeway? I mean, I, yeah, I cannot imagine that he is. Yeah, I'll confess. I don't know that I've ever seen him in a good movie. Has Martin Lawrence ever made a good movie? Well, you're talking about Bad Boys, and I'm presuming you've watched it. So you've seen at least one good movie. In case you can't tell, I'm the Bad Boys fan who just, this may end up like Blair Witch. We may be doing a twofer and then next year be like, well, here's the new one that we never really thought would happen, but I don't think so. And I felt like we've bashed Michael Bay a lot on this show. Baziness is a term Stuart coined during Transformers that does not stop in the Transformers series, but I like some Michael Bay stuff. I like 
everything he did before Pearl Harbor, with the exception of that Vanilla Ice I Love You video, which I did go back and rewatch. You love that too, don't lie. I always thought that song was a big misstep. But I did like his Divinals I Touch Myself video. And yes, his feature film debut here with Bad Boys. I just thought it was proper if we had two weeks to give Michael Bay a fair shake before we go into Transformers 5. King Arthur of Transformers. Yeah, and just to put it on record, he remains a director that I know largely nothing about. I have seen the Transformers movies because now playing made me. I saw Pain and Game because I thought I wanted to, and it was, well, it was better than Transformers. And <laughs> I remember this movie coming out. It came at a real interesting crossroads, I think, for film school enrollees. I was in film school and about half of my class was really into foreign films, art films, what you would call the classic stereotypical film snob. And the other half were people that were really moved by the recent arty action genre that people like Luc Besson with La Femme Nikita or John Woo with The Killer and Hard Boiled were really showing that there was artistry in a dumb action movie. And so... It was a real touchstone. When this movie came out, I can literally remember a literal fight breaking out in class when someone declared Michael Bay a new <laughs> genius, and then other people responded to that in kind. Well, Stuart, I'm sure that Michael Bay would love to know he was discussed in film class. On the commentary, he gave a little bit of a film class. There are no rules to film. Mm. That's the first rule. <laughs> that sounds like a hack. There's no <laughs> rules to writing. There's no rules to painting. You just do whatever you want. Sure. He said you can break the rules and you can make your own rules. So that film school, you got to know the rules to break them. Yeah, boy, I could have saved myself tens of thousands, couldn't I? I would have just gone to the Michael Bay School of Life. <laughs> He drives a nice enough car. I'll subscribe to some of his theory. Yeah, he followed some rules to get there. <laughs> well, hey, the, the following years, he'd come out with The Rock and Armageddon, which would get Criterion releases back in the day. I, they never released them on Blu-ray, but they got runs on there. So maybe there was someone that had those feelings that there was artistry in all these explosions. Or maybe they sold out. Again, I mean, I definitely <laughs> agree you can find film art in any genre. There are some people that are masters of their craft and bring that craft to whatever they're working with. But does that apply to Michael Bay? I don't know. Again, as a relative newbie, I've never seen Bad Boys. I was never tempted to see Bad Boys. And I wouldn't think that this would be the one that you were so hot on, Arnie. I mean, it's Armageddon and The Rock that everyone seems to love. I think that this is his best film. I have seen every Michael Bay film. I kept up. I watched 13 hours just to keep up with Bay before Transformers. And The Rock... I like The Rock. I haven't seen it since the 90s, but I think I'd recommend The Rock. I'd have to rewatch it. But I never was as hot on it as everybody else. Armageddon, listen, it's a dumb movie. I think it's a lot of fun, <laughs> but I know it's dumb. If I'm going to try to find something you guys could, if not love, at least appreciate, I think it's time to boil it down to his first film. And I'm a huge Beverly Hills Cop fan, 48 <laughs> Hours. This is in that vein. This is its legacy. I will say I've explored most of Bay's filmography. There's a few holes there, which I don't plan anytime 
soon catching up with. Do they all rhyme with bandformers? No, I've seen all those Transformers. <laughs> because look, here's the thing. I love to hate watch Michael Bay. <laughs> At least he's bad in an interesting way most of the time that I am entertained. I'm like, oh, I get to do some cultural studies based on this film. But Bad Boys, that was a blind spot in, I guess, my Michael Bay watching. I don't even remember hearing about this first one. I'll talk about Bad Boys 2 next week. But this first one got by my radar in 95. I love that. Michael Bay watching. <laughs> well, this one, I knew it was coming out. I saw the ads everywhere. And in 1995, you couldn't have dragged me to a theater to see it. I'd seen some episodes of Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, and I ended up deciding it was too juvenile for my sophisticated <laughs> 19, 20-year-old self. Were you more of a Martin guy? I actually watched many seasons of Martin, but even it, the more... The more he got in drag, the worse the, the season. Yes, the more he dressed in dresses, <laughs> the less I was interested in it. And so I saw this and I'm like, two sitcom stars in a cop film uh, directed by this commercial guy. I mean, I'd read Entertainment Weekly and other magazines. I had read who Michael Bay was. Nothing made me want to see this. But the next year, 96, I had a really good friend who, I mean, I was almost roommates. I had a key to his place and I just hung out there all the time. And he had a cable box decryptor, if you remember those. And so he got every station that cable offered, including all the pay-per-view movies. And so I watched a lot of movies I never, ever would have. I'm talking The Flintstones. I'm talking <laughs> The Shadow. Most of it was utter shit. I turned it on when it was free, but I certainly wasn't going to actively pursue these things. And that was the case with Bad Boys. The difference is with Bad Boys, I stopped everything I was doing. We left it running on a loop for like a couple of days because, you know, pay-per-view it would just run every two hours. And I have just loved this movie ever since. And I can't say I've seen this since Bad Boys 2. We'll talk about my memories of that. But I did watch it quite a bit all the way up till Bad Boys 2. Were you sober during all viewings? Not all. <laughs> <laughs> I gotta ask, because I think the most shocking thing about this film, and, and then I had to think back about where these two stars were at in their career. And I'm still not sure I have the answer to this. But Martin Lawrence got top billing over Will Smith. I know Will Smith would break out with Independence Day the following year. But was Martin Lawrence... Did he just have a better agent? Or was he the bigger of the two sitcom stars? He was the bigger star... Martin had done quite a bit better. He was a stand-up comedian with some success, and he'd had a much bigger film career. Really? Because besides Big Mama's House, I can't think of any other Martin Lawrence films. Before this, I did have to look it up because nothing was coming to mind, but I do remember him in House Party and House Party 2. I saw those films, and he made an impression from there. I don't remember him in Do the Right Thing, mm -mm. and I very much remember him in Boomerang. Mm. So he did come up under the wing of Eddie Murphy. I was wondering about that. Obviously, if you want to look at stand-up comedians, any comedian, certainly black humor at this time, Eddie Murphy was the A-lister, top-tier figure. If you were going to make a buddy cop movie, it was going to get compared to Beverly Hills Cop. He had set the mold. Yeah, they would later do a film together four years after this, that really abysmal life 
People love that movie. I do not. Okay. But Martin was the big show at that point. I think it just had a bit more respect than Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, which was a bit more Full House. You know, it aired with Blossom. It was like when you are too old for Full House, but not old enough for Cheers, you had Fresh Prince right there in the middle. I think it's in that same Parker Lewis can't lose kind of thing. And Martin Lawrence was attached to this film much earlier. Now, this film has quite a story and there's no way that these were the original planned leads for this movie i'll say that much this movie was written as a script called bulletproof hearts (laughs) awful name doesn't that just sound like a retrospective in the making can i guess was it arnold and sly no you couldn't be more wrong it was going to be made by Disney Ooh. for Dana Carvey and John Lovitz. Oh, wow. <laughs> okay. Bulletproof hearts, huh? Even in 95, they didn't have a career. I mean, ouch. <laughs> no, those hearts were not bulletproof. They had been taken down a peg by Wayne's World 2 and I don't know what John Lovitz was doing. John Lovett being John Lovett. Yeah. <laughs> no, he did have The Critic. I, I think that's an underrated show. But yes, I would not want to see a Disney film starring those two. Yeah, I think we'll probably, as movie critics, especially now more than ever have a soft spot for the critic in our hearts (laughs) John Lovitz where was he in that time because I couldn't think of anything but he was the less successful city slicker in the sequel (laughs) was he in Curly's Gold (laughs) he was but Dana Carvey he did have a couple of movies that were mildly successful and not so bad around this time. Master to Disguise hadn't come out yet. Yeah, don't you dare mention Pistachio Disguise. That is the worst. No, I would not count that one. The one I think of is Opportunity Knocks in 90 I liked and Clean Slate in 94. All of those kinds of movies, it was just so easy. When you look at a marquee, they were invisible to me. I looked at my options to going to see a movie in the 90s, and I saw any SNL performer in them. It would just vaporize from the list of showtimes, and I just, I never saw any of those movies. So that's what this was supposed to be. It's supposed to be kind of an SNL goofball comedy. When Bay was brought in, Lovitz and Carvey were still attached. He filmed 12 pages of this with them. I would die to see that. Michael Bay did? Yes. Oh, I, I would actually like to see that. That that could be entertaining. <laughs> as long as this shot of Carvey flying through the air with two guns in his hand in slow motion. <laughs> Which one did get to shoot the two guns? Carvey or Levitt? <laughs> Important question. Might be the funniest thing Levitt's ever did. <laughs> That's the ticket. And I think the movie they were trying to make ended up being Trapped in Paradise with Nicolas Cage, John Lovitz, and Dana Carvey. Remember that one? It came out It came out one year before this. <laughs> Invisible. No. I, again, I mean, yes, I remember seeing a one sheet for it, but again, that's all I needed to see. Well, this is produced by Jerry Bruckheimer. I think we've talked about Jerry Bruckheimer a lot. And Don Simpson. Don Simpson, we haven't discussed so much. He died in 96, but Bruckheimer Simpson were the Bruckheimer prototype. They did Flashdance. They did Top Gun. They really brought a stylized aesthetic and an action movie. And when I saw the Bruckheimer Simpson logo before a movie, I knew to be excited in the 80s and 90s. Well, assuming you liked what they did with Tom Cruise. I mean, I associate them Top Gun, Cocktail, Days of Thunder. Yeah, that's very 80s. I don't know if it's very good. 
I definitely recommend at least two of those films and need to rewatch the third. I won't say which is which. But for those who don't know the name Don Simpson, Jacob, have you heard that one? No. Oh, he was legendary. Again, I was getting into reading about the entertainment industry starting in 90, and this guy was a coke fiend of historic proportions. He was just maniacal and notorious, and... (laughs) He decided he really wanted to make this film work, so he took Carvey and Lovitz for a weekend in Las Vegas for partying, thinking that was the way to get them to sign. The reaction was Dana Carvey saying, that guy's a lunatic, I'm never working with him again, and I want no part of Bulletproof Hearts. (laughs) Boy, I don't give Dana Carvey enough credit, I guess. That's a good move. So the film went into turnaround. It sat around for quite a while. Eventually, Sony bought it off Disney for $3 million. Wow. And they saw this. You mentioned Wesley Snipes, Jacob. This was going to be an Eddie Murphy, Wesley Snipes buddy cop. Okay, that's starting to make more sense here. I definitely got the sense that they probably always would have jokes, but this was the era of the big action star. And yeah, they had to be thinking that they wanted to play up action not comedy yeah especially with Bruckheimer and Simpson on board they just are action guys by and large but it makes real sense if you think about it to have a pretty much a straight guy who can do jokes Wesley Snipes he was funny in major league and then Eddie Murphy he wasn't at the peak of his career by this point already it was starting to decline a bit for the 90s no Pluto Nash yet though (laughs) no No Norbit, no Daddy Daycare. Yeah, the darkest (laughs) days were about, yeah, three or four years away from all of this. But they passed, and Martin Lawrence signed on pretty early. They decided to bring him in as the funny guy. It was going to be Martin Lawrence with Arsenio Hall. Okay. This was back when Arsenio was still on Fox and still had some level of popularity. I loved him. I watched his talk show religiously throughout my high school career. And then, yeah, I kind of realized that he was an Eddie Murphy suck-up. Yeah, maybe if this was Eddie Murphy and Arsenio, Arsenio would have signed on. But he just didn't feel the script. They then tried to get Lawrence Fishburne in, which would make this a very (laughs) different film. Yeah, I mean, he had done deep cover. They, he had he had been, uh, action star is too strong a word, but he had definitely played in the genre of crime and suspense, and he would have been the straight man to whatever comedian they paired him with. But during this time, they also were looking at a director. They wanted, Bay won't say the name, just a well-known English director. I'm thinking Tony Scott? Yeah, I mean, they had worked with him, obviously. The Scott brothers had been involved in many Bruckheimer productions. Yeah, I think you're probably right. And Tony Scott did help Bay form an aesthetic. They, I mean, Bay and Scott were friends, so maybe Bay didn't want to say he took his friend's job. But he went into Bruckheimer and sold himself as very hungry to do this film. And he said he had a better idea for the star. He'd watched a lot of Fresh Prince and just absolutely loved Will Smith and saw a budding star. Bruckheimer and Simpson were like, yeah, we kind of wanted to do something with Smith at some point. They brought him in. They tested him with Lawrence. And so they got a director. Very cheap. Bay made $100,000 for this. 
First film, you know, can't expect much. What was his claim to fame? Commercials and videos up to this point? Yeah. Music videos, yeah. Okay. And he'd done quite a lot of them. The Porsche in this movie is his car, and he didn't get it off of this paycheck. He was very successful in that arena, so he kind of felt snubbed, because the day he came to film this, apparently Simpson came in, first day filming, slammed 90 pages of script notes down, said, this script sucks, Jerry, we're taking our name off of this. This will not be a Simpson Bruckheimer production. Bay, go do what you want. And then Jerry and Don flew to California to make their Disney film Crimson Tide and just left Bay there with Lawrence and Will Smith. Like, well, we do know this script is shit. And it never got rewritten for the new actors. It was still dialogue written for Dana Carvey and John Lovitz. Yeah, I noticed there's four writers on this thing. We got some writers piling up as well as actors and directors. And I tried to see, I tried to vet them. It made sense that where this all came from, the Bulletproof Heart guy had a big success with Buddy Road movie. Uh, Midnight Run, I think everyone considers that an 80s classic. That's probably when it was in its original conception. And then, yeah... The guy who wrote Die Hard 2 and Money Train probably did the bulk of the writing with some jokes peppered in by some writers who worked for Johnny Carson and David Letterman. Well, very little of anything those four writers did made it to the screen. They wrote the outline. And Bay will be the first to admit on the commentary, a commentary recorded around the time he was doing Pearl Harbor. So he had yet to fail, and he had some distance from this, so he was able to be honest. And he said that basically... This film was made for $9 million. It had a $19 million budget, but keep in mind, they paid three for the script and this, that, the other thing. It's, they had $9 million to make the movie, and they could not afford to hire a writer to rewrite the script. And so every day, Lawrence, Smith, and Bay would just sit down and look at what pages they were shooting that day and be like, okay, let's rewrite every bit of dialogue in this and try just ad-libbing, improving. So much of this was never on a page. See, Stuart, your classmates were right. This is an indie success. <laughs> $9 million. Yeah, and you know what? I'm glad that you're getting this out in the open because having just seen the movie for the first time, it has incredible tonal shifts in it that don't seem appropriate, really, to a Bruckheimer production. So it was kind of a bastard until it came out and made money then. Yeah. In fact, for the end scene with the plane explosion, it was raining when they were supposed to shoot that. It was in an open hangar. And so the producer, again, nobody there with power. There was just the line producer there to not write the checks and make sure they stayed under budget. And the producer's like, okay, you just don't get your plane explosion. And Bay was like, well, how much to come in early tomorrow and pay these guys time and a half? He's like, well, it'll cost $25,000. Bay wrote them a check for $25,000 to get that scene filmed because otherwise it just wasn't going to be in the movie. He would have no career without that scene. Like, that is his signature now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And he knew it. He said he was afraid to death of going to director jail. A lot of times you get one movie and if it really sucks and if it really flops, they just will never let you behind that camera again. He felt this was his one shot. So he put 25% of his own salary back in the film. He said after the film grossed 60 million at the box office, he called up Sony and said, can I get that $25,000 back? And they did reimburse him after it made <laughs> millions. But this was a phenomenal success. The most profitable film of 1995, hugely successful in Europe, which according to Bay, this proved 
African Americans can open movies big in Europe where they traditionally haven't done as well. So it became a huge success and Michael Bay immediately moved to huge budget things like The Rock and Armageddon. Hard to believe Armageddon's anyone's third film. Well, I guess what you're saying is if there's anything to compliment about this movie, it won't be the plot. Arnie, why don't you just give it to him real quick and we'll get into Bad Boys. Hey, it's pretty straightforward. Marcus Burnett, played by Martin Lawrence, is a Miami PD narcotics officer and middle-class family man. His partner, Mike Lowry, is played by Will Smith, a trust fund baby and sharp-dressed womanizer. When some criminals break into the police evidence locker and steal $100 million worth of heroin, those two bad boys are ordered to find it by their captain, Conrad Howard, played by Joe Pantoliano. Mike asks one of his informants, a call girl named Max, to keep her ears open for anyone looking to party with lots of heroin. Max does get an appointment with the getaway driver, but he wanted two girls, so Max takes along her non-hooker roommate Julie, played by Taya Leone. But the driver had stolen a brick of heroin, so he's visited by the drug boss Fouché. Fouché's men kill Max and the driver, and Julie watches from the bathroom. As Max had said the only person she'd trust if she were in trouble is Mike, Julie calls. But Mike is out pursuing a lead, so Captain Howard convinces Marcus to pretend to be Mike. So Marcus, as Mike, picks up Julie and takes her into protective custody in Mike's posh apartment. I'm disappointed he didn't put on a dress and imitate an old woman. <laughs> Meanwhile, Mike goes to stay with Marcus's family, and hijinks ensue as the two cops impersonate each other poorly. Meanwhile, they continue to follow leads to Fouché, including one of the gunmen Julie identified, who worked at a place called Club Hell, leading to a dance club shootout and a bathroom brawl. But Julie's location is discovered by Fouché's men, and they kidnap her. They go to the airfield where Fouché is getting ready to flee the country, and a major shootout occurs. Julie is rescued and Fouché is killed as credits roll. I mean, really, that is an exceptionally basic plot. You've got drug bad guys. You've got cop good guys. This is Beverly Hills Cop. This is another 48 hours. This is every episode of Miami Vice. It's about the style. And about the leads. I think the first thing they do wisely to give us the first scene is not set up the plot, but to tell us, who our heroes are. And again, I'm used to oddball pairings. Usually it's two cops that don't get along, but have a reason to work together and eventually forge an uneasy acceptance of one another. Here, the tension seems to be that Mike is rich and that Marcus, Martin Lawrence, is common man. Eats a greasy burger in the Porsche. He's not getting laid by his wife. Yeah, exactly. I feel like two things. One, I did not get the sense, given that this is the genre cliches, that Mike was too rich to be a cop. Like, usually cops live above their means in these kinds of movies. So <laughs> it had to be pointed out to me that, oh, yes, he shouldn't have these cars. Really? That Because I have in my notes, how does a cop afford a $120,000 Porsche? This is ridiculous. And then, oh, he's a trust fund kid. They're going to bring that up later. But I question that right away. I, it really, I'm like, what's going on in this world? I just took it to mean that Will Smith is the flashy one, which brings me to my other problem, which is that Martin Lawrence doesn't feel like the paragon of normalcy like he doesn't feel like the danny glover i'm too old for this shit i got a wife and kids it's a weird setup that martin lawrence is supposed to be the funny one and will smith kind of the straight man they both came from sitcoms but will smith is 
playing it a bit more straight. He has less funny facial expressions. He's not going all fresh prince here on screen. And yet it's the goofball who is supposed to have the normal life. And it's the straight man who's supposed to be really rich. But you can almost go with that in a odd couple kind of way. Because the rich guy has really nice stuff. He wants the press suits. He wants everything just so. He's a neatnik. And the other guy's a bit slovenly. Yeah, I don't really have a problem with Martin being the working class schlub with the family. I mean, he always seems manic. That, that's my memory of his sitcom anyway. My real problem is Will Smith. And again, I, I can't blame him because this is really, I think, his first big movie. By this point, I'd already seen him in a supporting role in the Ted Danson Whoopi Goldberg Made in America. Yeah, try to be a serious actor with six degrees of separation as well. Okay. I'm going back to Men in Black 2, where he's got to play the tough cop and not the funny one. And that just doesn't work for me with Will Smith. It didn't work in Men in Black 2, and I'm being taken right back to that spot as he's he's the cool, sexy single that almost doesn't have a sense of humor, but he's going to try to crack some jokes. I thought I was going to get a lighter Will Smith in this. If anything, going into Bad Boys, I'm expecting to have a few chuckles to like the way these two work off of each other, and Smith... His character is just so stuffy. I have a hard time going with him. And I think he's the one that's easier to go with because he's the cool one. He drives the nice car. He wears the nice clothes. It's a scene in the trailer. They didn't have any deleted scenes on the Blu-ray, but a scene in the trailer, he was going to be introduced with a pair of Latina twins in his bed. You know, Martin Lawrence wakes up with a couple of kids after the carjacking scene. Martin Lawrence wakes up with a couple of kids and Will Smith was going to wake up with a couple of hotties. And I think that's easier to project yourself on and be like, I want to be like Mike to quote this movie and everything, Michael Jordan. I may have had a di very different reaction to this seeing it back in 95, seeing it now for the first time. I'm just expecting a different Will Smith and that's not what I'm getting. Yeah, I think that's true. Back then, Will Smith was largely untested. For most people, I don't even know if they would know him from the sitcoms. Most people going to the movies. Movies had a bigger audience than TV at that time. So yeah, I agree. He had a room to maneuver and create a new identity. But again... It does feel off here. I mean, when they take down these carjackers way too easily, I'm wondering, is there enough difference between them to keep the bickering going? That's showing you how badass they are, how they really do work together, even though they're so different. Like, look, this is, I think, the most I'm going to enjoy this film. I I'll just say it right now. I don't laugh a lot during this, and I almost chuckle during some of this dialogue at the beginning. I don't feel they ever have that chemistry again because they got to flip the formula in this film. See, and I don't mind that they're mixing up the formula and we're actually seeing they're semi-dysfunctional, but it's not like a lethal weapon. This is more like a lethal weapon four where they've been working together for a while and they've got each other's back. <laughs> That's not a good thing. Where's Joe Pesci? <laughs> no, okay. Well, it's like a lethal weapon two. <laughs> I guess Taya Leone would be the Joe Pesci, and we'll call this Lethal Weapon 2. But I like that they've got a rapport. I do laugh at some of their jokes. I do laugh at later on, you know, you drive slow enough to drive Miss Daisy. This carjacking scene, before this movie got released, 
Bay did get to film just a couple of inserts. This was a pickup to introduce us to the characters earlier. And I think it works. I like the scene. And it does show us their badasses. This is not going to be a comedy with some action. This is going to be an action with some comedy. My problem is I don't know if they're ever this badass again throughout the film. I, I feel a little bit let down when they start bumbling around uh, switching identities. Yeah, we're, that's once we get into Act 2. But Act 1 is, of course, about the plot. God help us. And so they quickly switch to the idea that we're in Die Hard, right? There's an evil European who's leading this takeover of a building and they're going down vents and knocking people out and stealing a whole bunch of heroin. Either Die Hard or just a really intense reality show. I feel like I'm in Survivor. I'm waiting to be told who's voted off the island with this score. It's just, you know, in those reality shows when they're about to vote someone off, they play this music that's almost like your heartbeat. Boom, boom. Bum, 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 bum. That is all this is. I'm like, oh, I'm supposed to be like really, this is supposed to be exciting. That's what the music is telling me. Oh my God. I love this score. I have listened to the score. This score used to be my ringtone. Wow. Okay. I can't believe you don't like this score. I was, it's one of my big dings to preview next week is that they didn't get this composer back. They didn't bring these themes back. This is a hell of an upbeat rocking score. When the plot doesn't make sense and when they didn't have the money to make things quite as exciting as Bay would in his next film, The Rock, it is this score that carries this film and buoys it up. Knowing Bay only really from Transformers, I'm seeing his style defined. For me, the thing that I'm choking on is the rapid-fire editing. There are shots that go over three or four seconds in this film. That is a rarity for Bay these days. <laughs> yeah, but I think we are seeing his style here with this heist. When they're strapping a camera to a sled and sliding it down a chute, and we're seeing the pace of this heist build up and all of the action with the music going. This is toned down. He doesn't have the money to do everything. He doesn't have the money to buy the pop songs to put in here that he would use in later films where the pop song would even more on the nose convey an emotion than the score does. But this really is pushing the action genre forward at this time to get something so kinetic constantly moving john woo was not yet known in the states very well look you can't say because i didn't know him that this is the landmark this is the thief this is the guy that comes in and goes okay we're going to do what we know is cool but he he claims to have never seen a john woo film until after making this be that as it may this is not a new style i can't imagine that anyone seeing this movie at all would think wow this is really fresh I thought all of the movement really was exciting at the time, and unlike most movies, this camera does not stand still much. Uh, maybe during this heist, I mean, what, they, they gotta shoot one of their own so a helicopter will fly because he's dressed as a cop, so they could, what, invade the helipad to get into the evidence room to steal the heroin on rocket sleds? I didn't quite understand the dead cop thing until the commentary. This is apparently based off of a real thing that happened in New York where they robbed an evidence locker. When you kill a cop, all the cops drop whatever they're doing. Their number one thing is finding the cop killer because it's one of their own. But if you kill a cop, they're not going to stop till they find you. So apparently in New York, they dressed a patsy as a cop and shot him. So they thought it was a dead cop and all the cops didn't care so much about the stolen drugs. They were all into the cop killing. And then they found out it wasn't even really a cop that was killed. It seems like you'd find that out really quick. It also seems like you would have 
more than one person left at the station in a giant precinct in Miami. The idea that it's left to this one old fool to be watching the cameras is the height of ridiculous. Yeah, I'll agree with that because police stations aren't nine to five operations where everybody goes home at night. And usually you've got patrols all night. You've got people. Crime is higher at night. So, yes, I'll agree that that is a bit silly. I don't know if this gives this movie anything of a pass when even the director says you can drive trucks through the logic holes in the film. But he's right. You can. We can certainly pick that apart. I just am going to say, you're right. He's not a very original bad guy. This Fouché, I don't know the actor whose name I will not even approach. Checky Cairo, I'm guessing. He was in La Femme Nikita. Again, another action, one that I would actually call a seminal action movie, the 1991 movie by Luc Besson. But I think he's fine in this film as a drug kingpin who's going to be, you know, the murderous bad guy that gets things started. I think he's pretty weak. I think all the villains are really weak here. And there's so many of them, they pass by so quick. Again, I'm not exactly sure how important anyone is supposed to be other than Fouché. But it is Eddie Dominguez who pockets a brick of heroin and who goes rogue and who wants to party with hookers and who will get the plot going and bring our main characters in. Because our main characters, I think we're told, they were the ones that got this score. They busted the kingpin that had all of this heroin, and they quickly determined that this wasn't him taking it back because he's in jail and his men don't work in this style. And are we supposed to believe that they're the ones suspected by internal affairs of heisting this heroin? Like, there's going to be a whole subplot about internal affairs investigating everyone, and I don't know if it really goes anywhere. I know it plays a part in the plot, but does it need to be there? Is this a first draft storyline? It feels like something that was mostly excised during the editing phase. Like, there had to be a bit more to it. But I also think her being there is to tip us off. Somebody in the department is rotten. And we find out that this Eddie guy who steals the brick of heroin is an ex-cop. I don't think that she ever really thought that Marcus and Mike stole the heroin, but she thinks there's something rotten in this department, and she's not wrong. And this kind of movie always has women in power as ball busters. I mean, you always have to have these characters. I remember Lethal Weapon. There was always someone that was their boss, essentially, ahead of of their police captain who was always walking in and saying, you guys are screwing up and, you know, making it tougher for our heroes to work the way that they need to work. It was the shrink who was doing it in Lethal Weapon. It was this female shrink every time. Yeah. And, but there's, there's no end of ballbusters in this movie. We will also find out that Martin Lawrence is married to one. And boy, is this an unflattering characterization of the wife at home. It's a Michael Bay movie. What do you expect? Yeah, it's terrible. Teresa Randall, I had seen her in two things before. One, I really remembered her from when I saw this. She was the love interest in Beverly Hills Cop 3. (laughs) (laughs) Only you remember this. I saw her in the Spike Lee movie Girl 6. She was the star in that. I saw that later on. I'd also seen CB4 in Jungle Fever by this point, but I didn't remember her or King of New York. But she's just here as the wife at home with the kids to, yeah, be a bit of a nag, but she loves her husband. They both want quality time. They're a committed, sexually active, married couple who want time together. I guess sex is to Martin Lawrence's Marcus what a cappuccino was to Bruce Willis's Hudson Hawk. 
<laughs> Boy, your references. Again, I guess that these are 90s action movies. Not a whole lot of love for me for this genre. Again, I'm always hopeful when we're dealing with boilerplate formula action movies to see the nuance. I always want the supporting characters to have surprising flourishes. I always want to see details about a city that I haven't seen before. These are the kinds of things that endear me to cut-and-dry action movies and having this woman be, I think, in every single one of her scenes, busting Martin Lawrence's balls and never showing any of that love. We're supposed to understand, because she hasn't divorced him, that she must love him. We don't ever see that. No, we definitely see it. We see it in the opening scene. We, we do? Because they're fighting over about how he's not getting laid, like, that she won't put out. Yeah, no, he says, I got an erection, and she pushes him out of bed before the kids even bust into the room. She's terrible in that scene and in every other one. She's always yelling. She's worse to the partner, I'll give you that. I think she's very nice when Mike is there showing the photo albums of Marcus. Yeah, she's nice to Mike. I, she's never nice to Marcus in this film. There's a phone call. I know this isn't much, but there is a phone call <laughs> where she's trying to be real nice to him and seduce him and get him to come home. And that's where he can't because he's going to be busy. Again, every one of these scenes ends with her being a bitch. She ends up hanging up the phone on that. Uh, Martin Lawrence ends up busting in to try and stop what she believes is Mike having sex with his wife. At no point is she shown to have any warmth of humanity. She is the bitch at home. And then at work, they got the bitch that's telling them they can't have a PR nightmare. They need to solve this very quickly or everyone will find out how incompetent they are. I feel so bad for you, Stuart, if, if you're hoping in the nuance with the side characters. Because if these leads are brightly colored crayons, everyone else are like those safety markers that won't color off the page for little children. So <laughs> don't get it on your furniture. It Broad strokes. The fact that they bring in this ticking clock of 72 hours before the feds get involved. Well, why are they going to wait 72 hours? Wouldn't they just get involved when all this heroin gets stolen? Like, everything is artificial and contrivances here. And admittedly, Joey Pants here as every action movie's police captain, right? Just yelling away. <laughs> I love Joey Pants. I think he's chewing up the scenery here. And I love that hairpiece on him. I think this is hysterical. I really just find him charismatic. I love the three of these people on screen together. You're right. 72 hours, they're trying to save face. They don't want the feds to come in and have to clean up what is seems to be their mess. They're trying to be macho and deal with it themselves. So that's where the 72 hours comes in. Really, the ticking clock does not last long. They're going to quickly investigate and the entire motivation for this plot becomes personal versus just we need our bust back and arnie i i want to say i went into this with an open mind i my bar for this film could it make me chuckle and i was hopeful with martin lawrence and will smith yeah joey pants in there can this get me to laugh a few times? And that's probably a success for this film. It hasn't happened yet this far into the film. I'm worried. They're basically just told there's some other cops. They have some racial jokes because they're Latin and they trade banter back and forth. But basically, the idea is Sanchez and Ruiz are going to investigate who installed the duck work and actually do the actual detective work. <laughs> and the black guys are told, do what you do best. Imitate Eddie Murphy. <laughs> And this scene did confuse me. It's been a while since I've seen this. They go to a gym, and <laughs> I'm thinking they're visiting a female boxer. They're visiting a personal trainer. No, they're visiting a hooker. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I honestly, I did not get that until really way too late. Like, 
it really was a stunner when I was like, oh, working girl. That couldn't mean what I think it is because we saw her lacing up of the gloves. I mean, no, but yes. I was wondering when Mike said, people tell you things they don't tell me when they're working out. <laughs> yeah, no, they have 72 hours to solve this case. And what do they do? They go get someone else to tell them what's going on with the case. Like, no detective work here. Yeah, several seriously bad baziness elements come into play oh this early yeah are you kidding me okay so the boxing prostitute is so in love with this (laughs) cop that she's going to go find an easy trick who's recently flush as in this morning they know all of a sudden he has money and but wait she's supposed to hang out with her roommate this afternoon so i guess i'll just bring an unemployed photographer who's not a hooker to my trick at the hotel room julie's not a hooker i thought she was no it's what said is he wants two girls. I didn't hear that. No, it said I've, I've watched this movie twice for the review. The guy wants two girls. And so if Max wants to go, she needs to take her friend. What said is you have that roommate, Julie, right? Bring her along. And then they Max- were hanging out already. I'm telling you, it's a line of dialogue. She was willing to not go to work because she was going to spend time with her roommate who isn't in the life. Well, in the end, what said is take her along. He's probably so cooked up. He can't get it up. This just seems very weird, though. I don't understand why the non-hooker friend would agree, but except Julie, played by Taya Leone, she's the friend, thinks she's just going to a party. She doesn't realize they're going to one guy for a party. That's an awful friend. Hey, come with me to this party. And no, really, you're gonna have to sleep with people. She doesn't know her roommate is a prostitute? She may know the roommate's a prostitute. I don't know. But that's why when they get there, Julie's like, I guess we're early because there's nobody else there. And she thought they were going to a big party, not to party with a guy for two grand. And yet she's promised we're gonna have one drink and leave. This woman's gonna collect two grand for having wine? This is what Max told Julie. I think Max still had to get naked. And Julie is going to be so incensed to what happens to this roommate that she's going to fight for her honor the rest of the movie. She's going to try to kill her kill her in a crowded club. The things that she does for Max, I, I, I mean, are they sleeping together? Because there's a lot of gay jokes in this. I'm wondering if they're not a couple as well. It's the only thing that makes sense to me. I don't think that's what anybody on this film was going for. But if it helps you to like this movie better, thumbs up. Okay, yeah. Julie has such a thing for her hooker roommate that she (laughs) pretends not to know she's in the life and decides to go with her into this very dangerous situation in which the trick is declaring as they walk in, snorting heroin, straight heroin, by the way, uncut from the brick itself, pure, kill you with one snort heroin. (laughs) Yeah, nobody needed to shoot him. After one snort, you need John Travolta with the syringe to get back up. Yeah, and then he's proudly talking about this being Al Capone's suite. I mean... Who doesn't know at this point that this girl is dead? That actually was Al Capone's suite. They filmed it in Al Capone's suite. I'll add that. They just threw that line in. Again, improv. Everybody was thrown in and told to improv, which is how Taya Leone got the gig. She was one of the few actresses they tested who could keep up with Martin Lawrence and Will Smith when it came to just making shit up on the fly and rolling with what they came up with. 
really? Does she really keep up with them? Maybe she like rolls her eyes or something. I Improv. I don't feel like this is a good visit to the comedy club if this is what they're going for. I will say that Taya Leone is my favorite part of this movie. I have liked her in other movies. And at this time, she was in a little indie I adore called Flirting with Disaster. And she does have great comic timing. I know that Spielberg was very big on guiding her career and... It was supposed to go in different directions, but it was interesting to see her get her start here. It does feel like a weird pairing with Smith and Lawrence. It does, especially looking back. That said, this would get her a sitcom gig. You know, she was starring with sitcom stars. The Naked Truth would start the year after this. So she was seen as funny. And I am so sad you guys aren't finding this funny because this plot, I had to watch it a second time because I'm like, wait a second, who's the corpse? How did they find this body that's going to lead them to some of the clues? And it's that they had a special ventilation system put into the vault to suck out the heroin gas or the what is contaminating with the air. And since that's how they got in, they figure... The guy who installed it may have had something to do with it. They go, they find him murdered, and he owed a lot of money to bookies, so he probably sold out the police station to get out of debt. It apparently didn't help since he was dead. I definitely did watch parts of this film twice, like how they figured out who this guy was and where to go, because it doesn't make any sense. Like, oh, oh, oh we're going to check out the ventilation guy, and he seems to have like a super nice home, and they're going to break all kinds of code just walking in that. Oh, oops, the door fell open. Don't be alarmed, we're Negroes. Uh, is this funny? Too much bass in your voice. Do you have some brown sugar? It's 95 funny. I laughed reminiscing at when those jokes were cutting edge. Yeah, it's Night at the Apollo. I mean, I do feel like I'm reminded of The Simpsons where Homer Simpson was laughing at Night at the Apollo and going, <laughs> It's true, we're so lame. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, white people are the, which, which is why it's weird that one of the cops isn't white. Typically, that is the salt and pepper act, and that's usually what you play off here. The fact that, in my mind, Will Smith and Martin Lawrence are more or less the same thing, I'm really having a hard time seeing that one is supposed to be the stud and one is supposed to be the schlub. I think they're playing to type, though. I think Will Smith, being a rapper had a suaveness to him. He he had cultivated that image, whereas Martin's stand-up was always a little bit more hapless. And I come into this movie having watched several seasons of Martin and having listened to DJ Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince for a decade by the time I saw this. So I was able to play with their pre-existing types and see Martin, the TV character, here as Marcus the cop and see a bit of the Fresh Prince as Mike the Suave Rich Kid. All I know is they're going to make a punchline, the fact that Martin Lawrence has big ears, and I'm like, uh, Will Smith? Yeah. All right, whatever. <laughs> uh, speaking of sitcoms, let's talk about Act 2, because, yes, the Maxine prostitute is killed. Taya Leone, the friend Julie, runs away. She successfully swan dives into a swimming pool and escapes the clutches of all of these mass murderers. And so we're going to have her call the station looking desperately for Mike and for reasons that you really do need to explain to me. Yes, please. It's decided that Martin Lawrence must, for the rest of this movie, pretend that he is the cool guy. I see <laughs> Mike, like, investigating something at night. I don't know where he is. He's going to show up <laughs> later, I think, beat up. 
but I don't know what happened to him. The madam was being killed. The one that set up the whole deal, one of the goons came at her with a sledgehammer. Will Smith shows up there and the guy just says, he's got a sledgehammer and he just knocks him out and says, don't mess with us. Why not kill him? Because they don't want to kill cops because it brings down the heat, as I said earlier. That's why they had the decoy cop. They don't want to kill a cop. They don't have any problem killing a madam. They stole $100 million in heroin. They're having all the cops after them. They're having the feds. <laughs> They've crossed that line. Yeah, I, I'm not buying it. I, I, yes, thank you for at least giving me a scripted reason, but this still feels like laziness. Admittedly, I part of the reason I watched it the second time, I'm like, where exactly did Mike go? But Julie is skittish. She's like a kitten out in the wild on the verge of going feral. She will only trust Mike. She's about to skip town. So unless they say Marcus is Mike, she'll flee. And then I think they're afraid that if they then say, oh, by the way, I lied, she's going to be like, well, fuck you all for lying to me. You betrayed my trust. I'm going to flee. I thought she knew as soon as Martin Lawrence shows up at her apartment that this isn't the guy because her roommate talked up that this guy was so incredibly studly like Will Smith. It couldn't be someone as slubby as Martin <laughs> Lawrence. I actually found it really sweet because when she's like, tell me about your relationship with Max and Martin just assumes Will Smith is a player and Max is a hooker. He's like, we did a little of the bump and grind. And that's when Julie knows this, or at least suspects this isn't Mike because Max confided in her. She and Mike never slept together. <gasps> I thought he was saying he did bump and grind with his partner. That was why I got really confused. That's later. <laughs> no, I know. But... <laughs> okay, so he was trying to say that he, he got action out of this roommate that Julie is in love with. <laughs> in your universe, yes. <laughs> yes, I don't think that's in the movie, but if you, again, if this is... Yes. It is what is the story. Here's something that might help with Julie only wanting to talk to Mike. Did she know that Eddie was a former cop? Because I could see that, like, trust no one except this one person. Even the cops are in on this. We know internal affairs are investigating the cops. So did she know Eddie was a former cop? Because that might help. Well, there was some dialogue. We did see the main bad Fouché walk into the room after he killed the prostitute. And before they kill Eddie, they basically give all his backstory. And I think she might have heard from the bathroom. So, yeah, but I know what you're saying, Jacob. If this is a character that blindly walked into a hotel room thinking she was going to have one drink before she went out with her lover, why the hell is she suddenly so afraid of all cops she won't go into protective custody with anyone other than a man she's never met or seen before? Because Max says this is the guy she would trust, and Julie trusts Max. And I, I thought part of the reason was... <laughs> is because she, I thought she was a call girl. So yeah, you, you don't want to go talking to all the cops. They might bust you. We all have a choose your own adventure with this movie because so little is clearly explained. Well, Julie's a photographer, so she just has nothing to fear from cops. Yeah, and you see some of that artwork in the back. Uh, she's unemployed, so she needs to live with the hooker. These are the excuses. <laughs> but she has these foo-foo dogs, and so there's a lot of comedy in which Martin Lawrence is trying to shuttle her and the dogs out of the room. Uh, he does get a kill in here. It's almost overseen, but if you thought this movie was too jokey, and I do think that it leans more on the absurd than on action... Uh, it doesn't strike the balance correctly. He does at least take one of these guys out as he's whisking her away from danger. And these bad guys, they're pretty interchangeable. But one of them I know so well. 
what obscure bad eight nineties <laughs> movie was he appearing in? The guy who plays Ferguson, he's kind of the fat one. Sure. Not only was he in Trapped in Paradise with Dana Carvey and John Lovett, mm-hmm. that's not where I know him from. In Beverly Hills Cop 2, Eddie Murphy puts a gun to his head and says, Do you like rap music? He's like, Yeah, I like rap music. Say, Yo, baby, yo, baby, yo. Yo, baby, yo, baby, yo. Say, ow. And then Eddie Murphy knocks him out. That is his entire scene. But it was so memorable because it was so random. Eddie Murphy, do you like rap music? That I always knew this guy. I wish there was a scene like that in this film. Not only are they recycling Eddie Murphy jokes, they're recycling Eddie Murphy supporting players. (laughs) (laughs) What's so weird to me, yeah, there's a shootout and this little bit of a chase. They make a point that they got the license plate. They have Marcus's license plate number, and they're going to, like, track that. Marcus, well, maybe he doesn't like his family that much because he doesn't seem super concerned. He knows they have it. He's just not going to warn his family, I guess. He doesn't want his wife to know that he's with this other woman who he's protecting as a cop, which is his job, that supports his family because... She's going to get mad at him. Yeah, he has to say that he went off to Cleveland. It's his job, though. Like, you can't get mad at his job. They do have Mike stay there to keep track with the family. That is why Mike is staying at Marcus's house is to be a protective in-house guard. And this was a woman who, in her first scene with Will Smith, said, Don't kiss me. I don't know where your lips has been. Yes, Yeah, I'm saying that this setup is outrageous. Well, I took that as teasing. Like, you dog. No, you watch that scene again. There is no warmth at all in Teresa Randall's performance. At all. The whole shebang is, I hate these men. (laughs) But again, this is, I do not understand. I get that maybe you impersonate him on the phone, and then you get her to the apartment. But why... Why they think it's easier to keep up this bizarre deception? Because they think she's going to run away at any point. Like, Julie, the second she finds out, she's going to stop talking to him. What I don't get, the thing that is only slightly less mysterious than Martin Lawrence getting top billing in this film is the fact that now we are in Martin Fresh Prince sitcom level storytelling. Switching identities. The family man's going to act like the cool single guy and vice versa. Like... This is where this film is going? My mind was blown. Is this necessarily a bad thing that it defied your expectation? That it goes full sitcom, yes. I would say yes. It is. It's surprising because for several reasons. One, it's absolutely not funny. Two, we haven't had enough time with these characters to see them playing off of each other. Like, we don't know enough about them to get how they're parroting one of each other. Here's the third thing. Why is this woman important? What does she know that's value to them? She saw the people who killed Max. Yeah. Take her to a police lineup and then send her on her way. Well, they don't have people to line up. They want her to look at mugshots. She's refusing to go to a police station. She's refusing to go to protective custody, but she's the only one who can point them towards Fouché. They don't know it's Fouché. They have no idea who's behind any of this. Julie is their only lead, and until she can identify some photos out of mugshots of people before who have been convicted of violent crimes, they have no leads. Okay, so because randomly, after hundreds, presumably, of photographs and a big lecture about bologna sandwiches, she sees a guy who I thought we were told works at Club Hell, but in fact just appears to be hanging out in the penthouse 
Well, working at Club Hell, he could be the manager. He could be, he doesn't have to be the doorman or the bartender. And you gloss over the baloney scene. I mean, if you want to talk about what this film is going for, there is Taya Leone doing great improv, coming up with your baloney had 30 first names. And can I eat the pickle? This is amusing enough. My problem is then you get a whole thing of just no homo jokes because Marcus is in Mike's house. There's all these pictures of Mike who Marcus is pretending to be. So, of course, Julie, oh, this must be your gay lover. No, no, this is we just send photos of each other every time you save each other's life. Like, it's too juvenile for me. At this age, it's too juvenile. 95, maybe I would have found this funny. I don't anymore. Part of it is because I just think Martin Lawrence has absolutely no acting skills. He knows how to do his shtick. But he doesn't know how to to play a character here. And so when they're having scenes like she's going to come on to him, I don't know where he's at as a character. Is he worried that his wife is going to find out? Then stop this stupid charade. You know, this is an easily uh, scene to, to tamp down. Or is it that he's thinking about cheating? Because he's such a cartoon, we can't know him as a character. But it's his cartoon and rubber faces and things that make him an enjoyable on-screen presence. I'm not thinking these are deep three-dimensional characters. I'm thinking they're buffoons that are fun to watch as he's making all of the funny facial expressions as the dog is crapping on the carpet and as he's having to deal with the body that's making him revolted. That's amusing. Funny faces, why the dog craps on the carpet. Yeah, to me, this sounds, seems like the height of desperation. I have no trouble believing they're making this up as they go along. This is not brilliant improv. Poop jokes, ass jokes, gay jokes. This is bad. Real bad. Where's the wit? I would expect funnier jokes on Fresh Prince or Martin. You'd be sorely disappointed. <laughs> Admittedly, I didn't watch either, so maybe I would be. But yeah, I don't like these performers in general. I don't gravitate to Will Smith movies. I try, I actively avoid Martin Lawrence projects. And while we're discussing this and their investigation, I would like to just call out a early role for The Sopranos, Michael Imperioli, as JoJo, their informant, too, that they go to to try to find some leads early on. And yeah, later they're going to shake him down for the name of a chemist we never actually learned the name of. But yeah, there's, again, real sloppy detective work going on. You, you weren't impressed when Mike knew there was two girls because there's two shades of lipstick on the glass? <laughs> Come on, that is some top-grade detective work. It's fitting with his womanizer attitude and his neuroses and everything that he would notice that. But I think that the tension between Julie and Marcus is a bit fun. And if you're not jiving to the humor, which apparently I'm the only one that's going with these two stars' charisma, I'm going to say stars, and I'm going to say charisma, both in the same sentence there, then they do find out about that guy at Club Hell, which is a place I would love to party. They're playing some KMFDM. I was brought right back to my 90s CD changer. I loved KMFDM back then. Can I say Juke Joint Jezebel, the KMFDM song? This is the one time like, ooh, here's something <laughs> I like in this movie. I like that band. <laughs> yeah, if the movie wasn't a success, they could release this as a Victoria's Secret ad. <laughs> Whatever. I feel like everything in this movie is art-directed to be a Michael Bay world. When they go into a liquor store or when they go into a club, the lighting, all of it feels very stylized. There are bodies wrapped in tinfoil, suspended over lesbian angels that the camera is dollying underneath their skirt. I mean, again, I think that... Yes, signature moves of this director are being defined here. And whether you like him 
or not will, I guess, depend on whether you like these scenes or not. I, I have no problem with lesbian angels. But what about the action here? That's what this scene is there to be. It's not for the flesh. It's for Martin Lawrence to get an action scene. They are spotted by Fouché's men who noticed Martin Lawrence from when he was shooting at Julie. And they ambush him while taking a piss. And I like this misdirection. You know, Martin Lawrence is taking a piss. Some biker guy comes in that we've never seen before. And so you think he's absolutely nothing. Then the mobster comes in. Martin Lawrence sees him in a mirror. So he's prepared to defend himself. And the biker's got a bag and is going to attack from behind. I thought that was shocking. I didn't see it coming. What's shocking to me and what I didn't see coming is why Julie gets a gun and decides to go to the club, which just causes more problems. Like, what is her motivation? I get it. She wants to avenge Max, maybe her lesbian lover, the hooker boxer we all loved. (laughs) It's not her lesbian lover. It is. It's the only explanation. (laughs) It's Stewart's world it is. But this is just stupid. Who does this for a roommate? Honestly, one that she doesn't even know very well. The favor has been paid. Whatever she owed this roommate for not paying back rent has been earned when you get taken to the heroin addict's drug den. I mean, she's free and clear. I mean, I think it's ridiculous that both Mike and her were expected to believe have any feelings about this at all. I would do this for a best friend. Stuart, if you were killed, I would grab a gun to avenge you. <laughs> uh, in this way, I... Uh, well, yeah, actually, you may. <laughs> <laughs> this seems like an incredibly bad idea to walk into the middle of a nightclub and point a gun you've never fired before and, yeah, try to take people out at, what, 100 paces. But yeah, I'm not buying it as motive. I'm not, more to the point, I'm just not charmed by these characters. I don't feel like they have the kind of chemistry that would hold them together in these impossible situations. Yeah, speak about impossible. They Classic baziness. Hey, we're going to get in a truck that just happens to be full of a flammable liquid so we can have some explosions. That's not bazy. That's a setup. It's a joke for a slow-moving chase because you can't have a fast chase in an ice cream truck why did they have ether is that something they used to cut the heroin with yes there was that scene yes some scene somewhere it's an important scene that doesn't make a whole lot of sense where fouché is complaining to the drug guys that they're slowing down his operation because they're not cutting the heroin fast enough because the humidity is too high and the chemicals aren't right don't do it in miami then (laughs) But yeah, admittedly, they're kind of at a loss. You could turn the air conditioning up really high and run some dehumidifiers. But yes, that is why there's ether there is because Club Hell, the guy who worked there, it seems like Fouché, if he doesn't own the place, he's a de facto owner. He owns, he's running the place. And so the ether for the drugs is outside leading to this road chase, which is not going to be Michael Bay's best road chase by any means. Transformers does it better. The Rock does it better. But I'm enjoying it. I like the fact that there is humor in Martin Lawrence and Will Smith reacting to driving basically a rolling bomb and just the callousness with which they're going to throw ether out and try to kill these bad guys. It's an action movie thing. I've 
I guess I saw a lot more 90s action films than either of you, because when I'm comparing this to, like, Showdown in Little Tokyo and Under Siege 2 Dark Territory, this thing is a tight plot. Well, yeah, it's Under Siege 2. What about Under Siege? What about the first ones that are semi-good? Well, Showdown in Little Tokyo was not a sequel. Okay, but, I mean, why not compare it to Speed 2 Cruise Control? I mean... That's stacking the deck. <laughs> and I should probably come clean and just say, I don't like the originals that people even like. I mean, I wasn't crazy about Speed. I wasn't crazy about Under Siege. I don't like any Lethal Weapon movie. So if these Paragons are, are you know, the untouchable classics, watching these second and third generation copies, no, not going to win me back. But there is a clumsy sh insert shot of a helicopter, a newscopter filming Marcus, Mike, and Julie arguing on the bridge because this is going to be how Marcus's wife is going to find out. Wait, he's not in Cleveland? Silly me. I thought Joey Pants, Captain Howard, that, that was going to get him pissed off that like this had gone so public. But no, this is just another reason for the wife to be a bitch. Yeah. And boy, they don't miss an opportunity there. It's, again, I guess it's predicated on the comedy. I mean, who else could be married to Martin Lawrence, I suppose? And I do like the scene where Julie has pretty much figured it out. And so she pretends to try to seduce Marcus, thinking because Mike's such a womanizer and she's just completely playing him. And then she sets him off by going, oh, Marcus is so smooth. I bet his wife's feeling the smoothness now, thus getting in real Marcus's head that Mike might sleep with his bitch of a wife. Again, these are ideas for scenes. They haven't been well set up. I mean, yeah, they wind up fighting in a kiddie pool. And badumch. I mean, come on, you're not cracking up when Marcus hears over the phone, Mike and his wife, you know, they're looking at a photo album. He doesn't know that. And a picture falls out and his wife's like, oh, it slipped out. Stick it back in. Yeah, I mean, any Perfect Strangers episode would be perfectly <laughs> happy to have that kind of line. But I want more. I, I just, to be fair, if this is the standard by which people are accepting this movie, I guess I just don't like action movies then. Because I think this is all very poor. Poorly done. Poorly staged. Just bad. I'll agree that this going because he thinks his partner and best friend is sleeping with his wife is a leap too far in my mind. That's like, there needed to be more build up for him to believe that because... If he's being so faithful to his wife that he is resisting Julie, then why would he think that Mike could or would want to sleep with Teresa? So this is the one point where I feel it goes into silly sitcom territory, whereas everything else... I feel is within action movie bounds. The liquor store scene, you're cool with that? Why is the liquor store scene in this film? I don't know what it does. <laughs> We're seen in the movie, like clearly needed to be cut. I think they just like the idea of dealing with the racial issue. We have two black men on screen, and so we need to see someone that has a problem with that. And we have a racist Middle East liquor store owner who's going to jump to wrong conclusions and hold them at gunpoint, and they're going to get the upper hand and take his bubblicious and Skittles. Listen, you mother bitches. There is a point to the scene. This actually was a scene that was shot after the fact. I said there were four. This was another one because they realized there was absolutely no reason for Marcus and Mike to go shake down Jojo for that information and put a gun to Jojo's head. Not having a reason hasn't stopped him from doing many things in this film. Why start now? <laughs> so they inserted the scene so that they could talk through 
chemistry and that they needed to find the chemist who could cut all this heroin. So when she's shopping for hairspray, they go off on this riff about chemists and needing to find a chemist. And then they decided to spice the scene up with a bit of humor. Hence the give me some Skittles and some bubblicious. Yeah, they're doing what these comedians know how to do. I've seen Will Smith make that joke many a time. And again, if you like him, you're more prone to laugh. If you're not a fan of him, I don't think you're going to see a new dimension. I'll leave it at that. These characters, comedians, they're giving you exactly what you expect and nothing more. But then (laughs) what kept coming to mind is all the cross-dressing comedies that used to be funny after Tootsie. Remember, Tootsie basically had a million imitators. Big Mama's House, yes. Well, I'm also thinking, you know, just one of the guys and whatever that Corey Haim one was with Nicole Eggert and just so many, even Bosom Buddies, the TV series. There's always the moment of the big reveal that has to happen in the most chaotic way possible. So because they were on TV and Teresa knows Marcus isn't in Cleveland and Julie's pretty much figured it out. And then right after Yvette, one of Mike's women shows up half naked Finally, Teresa's going to show up and Julie's going to be like, screw this noise. If Teresa can find us, the bad guys can find us. And she's not wrong. And so she's going to leave. And the bad guys are there waiting in the lobby. And so we have lots of Michael Bay stuff. The only thing I'm sad about is they don't kill Chet, the annoying desk clerk who has way too many comedy scenes. I felt like Chet was the closest to getting me to almost smile. I'm glad he didn't die, I guess. I don't really care about anyone. (laughs) I liked Chet for what he did, you know, the wannabe. Do you want me to do a stakeout? I got a stool and a magazine. I can sit outside. I've seen this on a million episodes of like Hunter or things. I just go with it. But you've seen it in Transformers and complain. I'm really surprised seeing the quality of this movie that you had such complaints about those Transformer movies, the way that they were made, the way that they were acted, the random out of nowhere left turns in the plot, and that you're riding along with this ride for the fun of it. Here's the thing, Stuart. That is Michael Bay. I I feel, you know, maybe not when he gets serious with 13th Hour or Pearl Harbor, but, I mean, Armageddon, (laughs) there are times that I do chuckle during that one. Like, I think Owen Wilson gets some good lines. It can work, but I think Michael Bay thinks it's way funnier than most people do, and so he just lets it ride. I do think from the the behind-the-scenes stuff, they laughed harder than I laughed. But I'm enjoying Will Smith, and I'm enjoying Martin Lawrence more than I enjoyed 30-foot CGI creations and Shia LaBeouf. Okay, so if Will Smith had been in the Transformers movies, or if Bernie Mac had played a larger role, (laughs) you'd be okay. Was Bernie Mac in the Transformer movies? (laughs) The first one. And you know what? If I could tell those goddamn robots apart, that would help those movies (laughs) immeasurably, okay? When they go fighting, the fact that I can't tell. Here, when Marcus and Mike are in a shootout with the heroin guys... I know who's on which side and who's getting shot. That matters. Not only that, I know who's playing Mel Gibson and who's playing Danny (laughs) Glover here. He's going to actually do the running with the shirt open thing here in the climax. That was funny. Yeah. The thing is, Will Smith doesn't have the edge that Vietnam vet suicidal rigs had. I mean, they just haven't created that character here. No, it's his whole thing is people don't think I'm a real crop because I have a trust fund and I don't know if that's ever resolved. (laughs) Yeah, I agree. We don't buy this. This does feel like an act. But the fact that he is willing to risk his life and to run out there without buttoning up his shirt. (laughs) 
effort to try to save Julie. This should show you. He's putting his life on the line for the witness. Or the women. Yeah, he, he's hoping to bang Julie later. He's proving to us he's a real cop, and he's proving to Marcus he's a real cop. Although, I think they've been partners for so goddamn long. I don't, I don't think Marcus really questions his partner so much as just likes to needle him. Yeah, he might be proving it to you. I'm not convinced. Yeah, again, I'm baffled by the past that you have given this movie. You're not seeing problems? Oh, no, I am seeing problems, but I'm having fun in spite of them. Okay, and the fun is basically that I enjoy watching Will Smith and Martin Lawrence on screen. With this material, and I think this action is well done. I really do enjoy this chase through the streets of Miami, and I'm sorry, but when Michael Bay does that camera swoop that was in all the trailers, and it's the low shot of the two of them in slow motion, that gets me. Michael Bay, when he's not relying on too much CGI, can get my adrenaline pumping. I mean, that shot, which I like it when Edgar Wright did it much more in Hot Fuzz is a satire of this. But yeah, it almost feels like an accident. Like, I don't see anything that creative, that artistic in this film. It's almost like the, the camera like accidentally swung on the crane or something. And, and he's like, oh, that was actually good. Like, no, he had to fight to get that shot. He had to really argue. It's so short. That's what shocked me is like, I thought it would be like a whole 360 thing. Because I, I know I've seen part of that. Again, hot fuzz. But yeah, it's just a short little scene. He had to fight for that. Yeah, probably a money thing. He probably had to fight to get the funds to to make that. Not that they would consider it a controversial shot. They got the cameras. They got the actors. How much could that shot cost? It was a matter of the setup. The line producer didn't want to spend the money and take the time and run the risk of going over their deadline by setting up for this little shot that Michael Bay was insistent upon. He was a commercial director. This, he's great with small snippets and fast edits. Commercials, music videos, nothing longer than five minutes, usually 90 seconds, and he has to convey a lot of information and do it in an attention-grabbing way because those are things you have on in the background. Nobody ever sits and says, I'm going to pay full attention to these commercials or these music videos. And I think those skills he honed in that time serve him well cutting these action scenes together that he didn't have a lot of money. He couldn't blow up everything inside every scene the way he would in later movies. So here, the camera work... The score, that amazing score, and the energy these actors are putting forth during the action scenes, they leave the comedy behind and they sell me with seriousness, or at least Will Smith does. I go with it. We're talking about the shootout at the airport at the end, because I find it kind of just sloppy. I don't find it well done action. Well, I was actually talking about all of the action in general, specifically about when Julius kidnapped. But yeah, then they do have to find out that there is an informant inside. Eddie, they couldn't get his file the whole movie. They're like, get us Eddie's file. And there's the secretary, Francine, played by an actress who I only know from the very first scene of True Romance. Do you guys remember her? No. She was the one Clarence was trying to pick up at the very beginning by talking about Elvis, and he invites her to the Kung Fu movies, and she says no. Yeah. That's her. She had the exact same hair, the exact same fake voice, everything. So I immediately knew it was Francine was from that. Well, she was dating Eddie, the ex-cop. She was the mole who, I don't know if she gave them a key or just gave them all the information about the heroine. She's how Fouché 
got all of these drugs. And so we have to have a very tall criminal hacker get this file out her and she's going to give all the final information about where Fouché is and where they might be able to rescue Julie. Yeah, women are bitches, aren't they? They're just some bitches. (laughs) And now the final action scene. (laughs) I do have to laugh. There's that scene, it was also in the trailer, Joey Pants on the phone, I'm calling in a favor, I need helicopters, I'm calling all cars here, baby. They show up at the end of the scene, all of that favor he called in, all those cars he called, come to put out the fires. Yeah, you know, I I realized at this point how confused I was about what their mission was to begin with. I thought they were there to protect Julie, but they are DEA agents. Really, they're not in witness protection. They were supposed to stop a drug deal. And so, yeah, all of a sudden, there's a drug deal with some... Is there a name for this guy in the white suit? I don't know if there is. I didn't write it down. It hardly seems to matter. Again, the thing that they're supposed to be fixing... Beside the point, really, it's just about getting Fouché because he's European and wants everything sent to a Swiss bank account. And he killed Max. But there is that scene. You said you forgot they were DEA. There was that scene early on after the car chase when Marcus says, there goes our lead to the dope. And Julie's like, the dope? What about finding Max's killer? And then Mike has to say... The thing Mike really cares about is finding that, you know. So Marcus has always had his eyes on the drugs. He didn't care about the boxer hooker, but Mike did want to avenge her too. So we do get to this airplane hangar and Julie's there as a hostage. She'd stolen a handcuff key because they'd been handcuffing her to the car after the whole club hell thing. Not a wrong choice, I want to add. But not an empowering one. If if she was going to be a part of the team, I don't. I didn't see it happen over the course of this movie. But I think she is vital, and especially here at the end, she ends up grabbing a gun and saving some lives. And you say all the women are bitches. Julie is not a bitch. I like Julie a lot in this movie. Taya Leone, really, every scene she's in shines. Yeah, no, again, my favorite part of the movie, but feels like she's in a different movie, which she was. <laughs> I'm just disappointed that I haven't laughed at all. That was my bare minimum bar, but I guess we're going to get the action stuff, and I feel like I know what to expect with Michael Bay. You forgot your boarding pass. Come on. That's straight out of Die Hard 2. You know this Die Hard 2 screenwriter had to be like, I'm working that one back in. There's a plane. I'm going to use it. That's Martin Lawrence's big Arnold line when he blows up uh, the ether and kills one of the henchmen. I think his name is Casper. Doesn't seem to matter. I much preferred Will Smith's, my shit always works sometimes. I was confused. He's the one with the cool car, but Fouché also? Where did his cool car come from? (laughs) From selling heroin? He just said he bought it to take back home. He's flying it back home. Okay. These subtleties were lost on me as I was holding my eyelids open. (laughs) And yeah, it's the big plane explosion with the bodies flying out of it that Michael Bay was so sure had to be in the movie that he wrote that check himself. I think some of the explosion was always there, but the bodies flying out. Bay had to have the bodies flying out. And then, yeah, we kill the henchman. That one I liked because he wrapped in a different movie gets caught on fire because he shot, stumbles into an electrical box, catches fire, and thus is going to lead to the major explosions. So Michael Bay, he must have done car ads, right? I'm having to believe that this ending came from, well, we only have a limited amount of money, and so I know how to do this. I mean, I did not see the end of this movie being about who's going to drive through the narrow hole. 
<laughs> I mean, come on, what about that explosion? To me, I'm like, wow, that's where it started. It, and it's such a standard, like, first director, I don't know, explosion. It's, like, not impressive like you'll do later on. It's You can see, like, the different flares going off. But, yeah, now we're gonna. it's going to become a race car movie. And the point, I guess, if we're to see a structure here, in the beginning, Will Smith was driving. Now he needs to let his partner prove it. And so it is Martin Lawrence that gets them through the finish line and beats that awful European at his own game. And Martin had driven before, and that was, you drive slow enough to drive Miss Daisy. And so now, you know, there's the lines that gunshot wound improved your driving skills because Martin did get shot in the leg or that's how you drive from now on. That's how you drive. I'm enjoying the repertoire between these characters there. Has there been a character arc about Mike being like a murderous cop? Because this end, you know, Fouché has crashed and like it's this big temptation for Mike to like shoot him in the head but he's just gonna get him in the leg he's just gonna take out his leg and there is all this tension building up he finally is just gonna shoot him but it feels like I'm supposed to believe that like Mike's struggle is to stop shooting bad guys yeah they had that really probably the least dramatically believable scene (laughs) and that's saying a lot in this movie (laughs) was when they had Jojo held down and we're supposed to believe that good old fresh prince is willing to put a bullet in his head and his partner's head like we're supposed to take that literally no i don't think we were ever supposed to believe that that was just classic good cop bad cop they were trying to frighten jojo we the audience were never supposed to believe that marcus seems pretty pissed off after that yeah the big thing is earlier marcus is like don't even be comparing body counts you know that one two three four i'm out of fingers so there is a running joke or conversation thread about how many people mike has killed and The thing about being rich is, is Mike an adrenaline junkie? Is he a cop just for the action? So I think that's part of why it's a problem for him to kill people. These are supposed to be two loosely linked sides of the same coin. So by proving he's not just an adrenaline junkie, he was in it to save Julie and then to show he wasn't going to kill Fouché. Well, until the Spanish guitar begins to kick in here and they restage Die Hard. Yeah, too bad they got caught up doing that sitcom plot in the second act, the switcheroo, so you couldn't actually get that character arc. That sounds like a more interesting movie where the family man is trying to get this single adrenaline junkie to calm down and see humanity. (laughs) That does not sound like a movie I would enjoy nearly as much as bad boys. I guess they wouldn't be bad boys then. I, I, I'm not sure why they are bad boys. I, I guess I know why Mike is. I don't even get the title here. Yeah, why are they licensing? Is this a spinoff from the Fox <laughs> reality TV show Cops? <laughs> Remember I said I didn't want to see this. Part of it was by this point, Inner Circle song was played out. That was like a 92, 93 song. I'm like, by 95, that felt like who let the dogs out feels today. So... The fact that no open cops, I think they just wanted something and that these two would be badass action heroes. So they didn't really explain it. I don't think I needed it explained. And they do sing the chorus at one point in the movie. And I also really liked that song from the end. You know, here they come, here they come, five vote, five vote. I thought that was kind of a fun little song that I didn't remember until I rewatched the movie. Was I supposed to watch through the credits? I, as soon as that thing started rolling, I was out. I fast forward to see if there was an end credit scene. Maybe they could get me to laugh at the very end, but no. I even watched the music video bonus feature just so I could hear that song again. But damn it, if you guys didn't recommend this, and I know you're not going to, 
I'm afraid for next week. But let's go through this. Jacob Stewart, what you gonna do? What you gonna do when I ask, do you recommend Bad Boys? Jacob. Is it bad? Yes. <laughs> and, yeah, the boys part. I Maybe because I'm older now, and I don't want to get all social justice warrior but there is a problem with the way women are treated that's saying just for michael bay and for the gay panic that that is just more upsetting now than when i was the age i was in 95 so again maybe i would have laughed at it then but watching it now for the first time look maybe if i went back to rush hour i wouldn't enjoy it that much or lethal weapon i mean there are cop buddy movies with odd couples that i do enjoy i just don't like this odd couple i had a very low bar especially i knew it was michael bay it was his first film could i get a good explosion and could i chuckle a few times I expected a lot of riffing and improv, and I got that. It just wasn't funny, and that, to me, is the big problem. For, forget all the plot holes. I, like you, Arnie, you were willing to go with that because you were entertained. That was my expectation. If I could be entertained, I would go with all the baziness. I would go with the action, but I wasn't entertained. I didn't laugh. So for me, this just isn't a fun movie to sit down and watch. It's not recommend. Stuart, what you gonna do? Strong not recommend. I mean, this is a compendium of what's wrong with guy movies and action movies. If you wanted a litany of every cliche, here it comes, done poorly. It's starting with the leads. Yeah, you gotta like Martin Lawrence and Will Smith. Many people do. They're At least one of them is still a big box office star. I never have. So they don't show me any reason to be a fan here. They do exactly what they do, and it's not funny. And it's very strange to watch them, yeah, try to mimic one another so poorly that half of this movie feels like Big Mama's House. Seems like a wrong choice. Yeah, Taya Leone is an actress I like, but she's certainly not going to single-handedly yeah, save this movie from all of its many problems here. This is a really stupid movie. And again, I would, would say that Michael Bay got better. I can't really think. Maybe one Transformers movie is worse. But everything I've seen is an improvement over this. That's Transformers 2, right? Yes. <laughs> so I'm going to put a really positive spin on this. So you're now more excited and hopeful about <laughs> Transformers 5. <laughs> There's a new low bar. <laughs> Oh, and I give this a really solid recommend. It's not a strong, strong recommend because I realize it has problems. When I was watching this, I came back thinking that this was a movie I loved and adored and just couldn't get enough of. And I think when I was 19, that was the case. Mm -hmm. Coming back, this movie is clumsy. It stumbles from one scene to the next. If you're not enjoying the chemistry of the stars, God help you and we have heard from two-thirds of this panel who didn't, yes. so God help them. But I enjoyed this. I don't even think this is Will Smith and Martin Lawrence at their best either, but I think they work really well together. In fact, I will amend that. This may be the best I've ever seen Martin Lawrence because I have seen some Big Mama's House, and this is much better than that, and this is better than Bad Boys 2 to preview that. But it started Will Smith's career. I mean, it went from here... Independence Day, to Men in Black, to Wild Wild West. <laughs> but this movie propelled him to the spotlight and was the first of a building block of a super career of an actor who I like more often than not. And I still think this film is Michael Bay's best work. I stand by it that it's, first of all, 
a relatively thin 119 minutes. That is short for Bay. <laughs> it's good because there's less of it. <laughs> I'm just saying that it's not overly drawn out. It doesn't feel bloated in any way. I don't wish this was over any sooner than it is. I'm actually left wanting more. After this, I couldn't wait for Bad Boys 2. I'd have to wait a long time for Bad Boys 2. It wouldn't come until 2003, eight years later, during which both stars had their ups and downs that we will talk about next time. So what you're saying, I think, is I'm sorry, right? That this was something you thought was going to be better than it was, but because you have nostalgia for this genre and you were the right age when you saw it, you're more willing to give it a pass. I think I'd give it a pass today no matter what. When I throw on these now-playing goggles, as I call them, and watch a movie... Many a childhood favorite has been spoiled for me when I have to really evaluate it critically, Howard the Duck. I can still love it, but I once I had to sit there and think about its plot and dissect it, movies I love, I love less after reviewing them sometimes. In this case, I have given this a full critical look. I think that it's got the adrenaline, I think it's got the score, I think it's got the momentum to stay a solid recommend, even if I hadn't seen it before. But yeah, if I'm going to a star rating, I'd probably, if I was watching this for the first time, call it three stars. And because I've loved this movie for 21 years, I give it four stars. And listeners, thank you for joining us because we ride together, we review together, now playing for life. tell you i love you man yeah you know you always be getting emotional after gunfights it's because i'm glad we survived <laughs> Shit. <laughs> you talking <laughs> i love you too man don't be looking at me i said yeah i love you i said that shit <laughs> you my boy man nah nah you like my brother man Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing's Bad Boys Retrospective Series. Oh, that was good. How you one of those guys, huh? In and out. We hope you've enjoyed the show. Oh, that one puckered up my butthole. For more movie review podcasts, visit the nowplayingpodcast.com archives. There you'll find hundreds of film reviews, including Die Hard, John Wick, the Jason Bourne series, Kingsman, Machete, the Marvel Comics movies, and more. And come back each week for another new movie review. Oh, these dudes is off the chain! I'm calling in the favor. Now Playing relies on listener support to keep operating. You just remember one thing, my friend. I may not always be here. For our podcast's 10th anniversary, we have released over 150 donation podcasts through our Podbean page. Available there are series like The Matrix, the Quentin Tarantino films, Planet of the Apes, Jurassic Park, Aliens, and much more. Links to our Podbean page are available from nowplayingpodcast.com. Ah, uh, this is what I need. I need a SWAT team, helicopters. We're calling all cars here, baby. You can also join our Podbean crowdfunding campaign to help our show grow. Backers of $10 or more will receive exclusive bonus podcast reviews, including Hook, The Warriors, and Coherence. A link to our patron page is at nowplayingpodcast.com forward slash donate. 
Maybe there ain't gonna be no long run. We want to specially thank our Podbean donors of $50 or more, Joseph Black, Jacob Parkins, and Anders Marek. I'm telling you, spending time like this make a partnership strong. Also at NowPlayingPodcast.com forward slash book, you can order Now Playing's film review collection, Underrated Movies We Recommend. This book has 125 reviews about films you probably haven't seen, but you should. I think you mean to say, get our asses down there, please, Captain. Want to take part in the discussion? Join the Now Playing hosts at our forums where you and other listeners can give your thoughts on this movie review. The link to our forums is at nowplayingpodcast.com. Yeah, that sounds like that group thing talking. (sighs) Okay, maybe I did the group thing once or twice. You can also follow Now Playing on Google+, Facebook, and Twitter, where the hosts post new episode announcements, movie reviews, and contests, where you can win movies and soundtracks. Hey, man, work your magic. You say you're a computer whiz. You can also help Now Playing by leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. A link to Now Playing's iTunes listing can be found at nowplayingpodcast.com. My shit always works sometimes. Now Playing's Bad Boys series is produced by Arnie Carvalho. Whoa! Whoa! I am way too unstable for that bullshit. Stop all the goddamn movement! Everybody stop moving! Now Playing's Bad Boys series is edited by Heath and Arnie. Just do what you do, only faster. Now Playing's Bad Boys series credit narration by Brock. He doesn't talk that way. Talk like him, like him. Try to talk sexy. Come on. You don't sound sexy enough. The Bad Boys films, all audio clips, and music used are the property of their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. This podcast has not been prepared, approved, or licensed by any entity that created or produced the well-known Bad Boys films. Now Playing is an independent movie review podcast with no affiliation with any company involved in the publishing, creating, or distribution of that film series. I'm not trying to lose my job on this one. The opinions expressed in Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Venganza Media Incorporated. You got the right to remain silent. Anything you say can will be used against you in the court of law. Yo, man, what the fuck are you doing? Getting it out the way. Now Playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2017, all rights reserved. And no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. This is what we do. Now that's how you're supposed to drive. From now on, that's how you drive. When Bay was brought in, Lovitz and I keep calling him Carver. (laughs) Lovitz and Carvey a pretty much a straight guy who can do jokes. Wesley Snipes, he was funny in Major League, but... He got some good lines in Blade. I don't know if they're supposed to be funny. (laughs) Use it! Some motherfucker's always trying to ice skate uphill. (laughs) I still love that line. (laughs) But Julie's location is discovered by Fouché's men, and they kidnap her. They... They bark like motherfuckers. (laughs) And she did have two annoying dogs. (laughs) That's true. Who's up?